Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm your host, Riley Sue. Uh, I had a lot of fun last week, and I was so very pleased with the response to our episode and, um, you know, just really even the process, you know, of just getting to do all of that research and then put out the podcast and, you know, create the podcast. Um, was really awesome and I was really excited to keep the ball rolling this week and I think that this topic that we're going to get into is once again something that a few of you might know about or you know a lot of you might know about but you may not know the entire truth. Today we're going to talk about Claudette Colvin and as I'm sure you are all aware we're currently in the middle of Black History Month here in the United States um, which is also known as February which is also known as the best month of the year because it's my birth month. It is of course always important to talk about black history you know throughout the entire year and the struggle for racial equality and equity that has been going on in the United States for the past 400 years but right now students and people all across the country are talking about black history and it's really important to take part in that conversation conversation and I think that it's a great time to tell this story and to get it out there. We're going to talk about the life and the legend of Claudette Colvin today um, because she is still living y'all like the civil rights movement was not that long ago. Um, the children of slaves are still living like the the people that were living and acted in the civil rights movement are still living. In true know-it-all fashion, we are going to take it all the way back to the beginning. We're going to cover some baseline uh, information on the topic before we get started. So go ahead and grab a drink. I have a Capri Sun, which if you haven't had one since you were a kid, girl, go out and get you one. I just snapped off, (laughs) off mic, so I don't know if that transferred. Soda is so expensive right now. Do not go out and buy pop. Do not do that. You need to buy Capri Suns. They're delicious. Or just regular juice. Um, Drink water first and foremost. I also have my water. You know, sippy sippy. So yeah, let's just go ahead and get things started. Our story this week is set in the birthplace of the civil rights movement, Montgomery, Alabama. But the story of Montgomery begins before the story of Alabama. For a long time, it had been settled by Native American groups who were living along the Alabama River. But in 1814, General Andrew Jackson and his troops romped over the Creek tribe who were living there at the time and forced them to cede 23 million acres of land to the United States. By 1816, this land was now known as the Mississippi Territory, and Montgomery County was organized. Montgomery became a city and Alabama became a state in 1819, and the city began booming with one of the state's largest industries at the time, slavery. A courthouse was built in the same location of the modern court square, and it contained one of the largest slave markets in the South. Nearing the end of the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, the mayor of Montgomery, W.L. Moses, convinced the state legislature to redraw the city's boundaries, which effectively held the hand of white supremacy as it grew into the ugly Jim Crow South. Jim Crow was a derogatory slang term for a black man, and over time it began to be the name for any and every state law that was passed in the South that created different rules of interacting with the world for black and white people. And though this system prevailed all across the South and into many corners of the lives of black people in a pre-civil rights era, I'm just going to highlight a few of the laws that were specific to Alabama and their Jim Crow era. And this is nowhere near the full text of these bills or a full list of bills that were passed in Alabama. Um, Just a few that I think are going to help you understand the systemic oppression that was taking place here. 
Beginning in 1865, the state constitution laid out that it was the duty of the General Assembly to periodically enact laws that prohibited intermarriage between whites and blacks or with any persons of mixed blood and establish penalties for doing so. In 1875, the state constitution required separate public schools for white and black children, and in 1878, 1901, 1927, 1940, and 1957, the state legislature created laws to enforce this constitutional Segregation reached the polls when, in 1901, the state constitution was amended to add literacy tests for voters, the ballot was reorganized alphabetically instead of being organized by party, and voter registration took place in May, which was the busiest month for farmers. And at the state constitutional convention where these changes took place, John B. Knox, the president of the convention, supported disenfranchisement of blacks by saying it was legitimate if done on the basis of their, quote, intellectual and moral condition, end quote, not because of their race. Yes, John, I'm sure you're taking the vote away from black people because you're not racist. That's right. But today, we're not here to diss on John, and we're not here to get into the nitty-gritty details of the Jim Crow South, though the history and laws are something that I could talk about for quite some time. Today, we're going to talk about Claudette Colvin, and Claudette Colvin was born Claudette Austin on September 5th, 1939 in Montgomery, Alabama, to Mary Jane and C.P. Austin. When she was young, her father unfortunately abandoned her family, and because her mother could not support her children on her own, Claudette, her mother Mary Jane, and her sister Delphine moved in with her maternal great-aunt and uncle, Marianne and Q.P. Colvin. Claudette and her sister actually took their aunt's last name and referred to them as their parents. Claudette lived with the Colvins in Pine Level until she was eight years old, when the family moved to the King Hill neighborhood in Montgomery. Two days before Claudette's 13th birthday, Delphine unfortunately died of polio. Soon after this, Claudette began attending Booker T. Washington High School in Montgomery, where she was a bright student and made it to the honor roll. But today we're going to zero in on one day of Claudette's life. March 2nd, 1955, which was a Wednesday that was beginning to feel like spring in Montgomery, Alabama. For the last two weeks, it had begun to get warmer outside, and now the balmy 80-degree weather was calling to the students of Booker T. Washington, and they were let out from school early. Perfect conditions! At the time, Booker T. Washington's campus was on Union Street, and there was a specific bus that ran from the school to the bus station where most students would transfer buses to their final destination, and the students called this bus the Special. That day, the students walked north from campus up Union Street about three-quarters of a mile and found themselves in the middle of downtown Montgomery on Dexter Avenue, inside of both Dr. King's Church and the Alabama State Capitol. Aside from the weather, the teens had come to this area of town to pursue the shops, but they didn't have any money to spend, so they turned their pockets out and cut their losses. It was time to hop on a bus home. Now, I think that everybody has a different image of what they think the buses in the 50s, and more specifically, a different image of the buses in Montgomery in the 50s, Previously, I had thought that they were like all the city buses that I've ridden on, which have bus seats that face inward for most of the interior, like with your backs to the window. Um, and there were parts of the buses in Montgomery at the time that were set up like this, but most always there were rows of four split into two by an aisle and then a final full row of seats across the back of the bus. If this isn't making a whole lot of sense to you, don't worry. I went ahead and posted a whole carousel of images uh, for this on our Instagram at knowitall.pod. And there you can see some photos of Claudette as well as some pictures of Montgomery and the buses that were running there during the time. So because the students had walked away from campus into the area around the Capitol building, they could not take the special home. Instead, they had to get onto a bus line that would still take them north to King Hill, but its destination was instead Highland Gardens, a white neighborhood. 
King Hill was and still is a small neighborhood of less than 10 streets where some homes are abandoned or lots are empty. And Highland Gardens was and is a sprawling neighborhood that is home to ceramic pottery stores, an elementary school, and multiple churches. Do you catch my drift? As Claudette and her friends boarded the bus and paid their 10 cent fare, they did what they always did. They sat as far forward in the bus seats as they could, as near the front of the colored section as possible. And upon their boarding, there were few people on the bus, and it seemed like this ride would be like any other. But that was not the case. History had something else planned. The bus moved on, slowly making its way north and stopping every so often to pick up passengers. A lot of passengers, it seemed. And this was a problem. This meant that soon black passengers would need to vacate their seats in their section to make space for white passengers on their way back to Highland Gardens. Eventually, a passenger got on that would be the tiny particle needed to activate the catalyst that was living inside a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin. She was a young white woman and she was standing in the aisle, standing near Claudette. And in order for this woman to take a seat, four seats would need to be cleared. And this was not because she was some giant woman or because she had some mess of shopping bags, but because the etiquette and the idea at the time was that if a white passenger needed to take a seat, the whole row needed to be cleared. It didn't matter if every other passenger on the bus was black. If a white person sat in one seat out of the four, those other three seats must remain empty. No mixing and no exceptions. At the next stop, the driver got up from his seat and approached the passengers, demanding that the four students vacated their seats so that the white lady could take one. The other three black students that were sitting slowly got up and reluctantly made their way out of the row, but Claudette remained still. Montgomery bus drivers carried guns at the time, but she didn't seem to be thinking about that. The bus driver told her that if she didn't budge, he would call the police, but she still did not move. In her own words, she says, quote, History had me glued to my seat. Sojourner Truth's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder, and Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on the other shoulder, end quote. She was not thinking that she would likely be arrested and jailed for her actions. She was just thinking about everything that she had just been learning about in school for the last month. At Booker T. Washington, they had just finished Negro Month in February, not Negro Week like the rest of the country had let come and pass with little celebration. She had been listening and learning for a month, and now she was feeling the weight of the grievances she felt were around her, and she was ready to put what she was feeling into action. The police were called, and they came and removed her from her seat. They used her as an example. They told the story that she cussed and fought and clawed to stay in her seat, but none of that was true. She was an honor student on her way home from school, and she simply could not be moved. These police officers were looking for a way to enforce the laws that oppressed black people and continued the separation of races. She was an example, and the bus had a full audience. When they asked her why she was still sitting there, Claudette said, quote, I paid my fare. It's my constitutional rights, end quote. Shout out 14th Amendment. <laughs> They pulled her backwards out of her seat, and her school books went flying. They placed her in the back of the police car, and one of the cops joined her in the back seat. The whole way to the station and to the jail, they called her Thing and made comments about her body. Claudette feared for her safety. She was taken to the police station, and she was booked on two charges of violating Montgomery's segregation ordinance and one felony count of assaulting a police officer. At the police station, she was fingerprinted and then loaded once more into a police car to be taken to jail for the night. But as she rode in the back of the police car, she realized that they weren't going in the direction of the juvenile detention center or even to the women's prison. They were headed for the city jail where all of the adults went, and Claudette was terrified. The sounds of the jail that night still haunt Claudette to this day, and she never slept listening to the inmates and officers that were around her all night long. From the closing of the heavy metal lock on her cell to the moment she was bailed out, she remained awake, repeating the 23rd Psalm to herself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me for all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Claudette was bailed out of jail by the reverend of her church, who came to the jail with Marianne, her mother. And as the three drove home, Reverend Johnson said to her, quote, I'm so proud of you. Everyone prays for freedom. We've all been praying and praying, but you're different. You want your answer the next morning, and I think you just brought a revolution to Montgomery, end quote. By the time they made it back to King Hill, neighbors and other members of the community had gathered to welcome Claudette home, squeezing her and making her feel like what she had done was powerful. But as much as there was triumph and celebration that night on King Hill, there was fear too. Claudette had just stood up to three white men on a bus full of white people. She had been arrested for apparently assaulting an officer. There had been lynchings and cross burnings for things like this in the past. It was possible that this could happen again. Claudette's father stayed up all night with his shotgun, and neighbors whose homes faced the highway kept watch for signs of the KKK coming up the road. No one on King Hill slept. Claudette was not the first person to be arrested for refusing to give up her seat, and I'm sure most of us know that she would not be the last. Joanne Robinson, an instructor at Alabama State, was arrested in 1948 during a similar situation to Claudette. And another citizen, a man, was actually killed due to an altercation on the bus after refusing to leave his seat. But most of those who were arrested took their punishment and moved on. There is something different about Claudette's story, though. She got a lawyer, and she fought her case in court. Claudette's lawyer was Fred Gray, who at the time had just graduated in 1954 from law school in Ohio because there were no law institutions in Alabama that would admit black students. Gray had just returned to his hometown of Montgomery and he opened a law office with the determination to help his community, and he did, joining ranks with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples, or NAACP. He then acted as the sole legal representation for the group for eight years after it was banned from Alabama beginning in 1956. Fred Gray and his associations with the determined and powerful leaders of the NAACP is exactly what Claudette needed, and older members of the group were hopeful that her arrest would stir up feelings of activism and desires for participation from the teenagers in Montgomery. But when the time came and Claudette had her day in court, the ugly face of Jim Crow was rearing its head once more, and this time it had a strategy. The judge that heard her case dropped two of the three charges, the two charges for violating segregation law, and found her guilty of assaulting an officer. This was done so that, upon appeal, Claudette and Fred Gray would not be challenging the segregation law, but rather the assault charge. The community of Montgomery was outraged, and some people began to stay off the buses, but others had let the newspaper and the police department's lies get to them. They thought Claudette was unruly and had been aggressive. The community and the NAACP were unsure if this young girl was the right fit for this and if she was the right choice to represent her community. For many years, Claudette's been known as, and you yourself might even know her as, the pregnant girl that refused to give up her seat before Rosa Parks. And while this statement is made of half-truths in the wrong order, it's not an accurate description of Claudette. When the community decided not to pursue her case or to back her as the face of their movement, she was not pregnant. Later in the summer, Claudette did find out that she was pregnant and went on to give birth to her first son, and many people used this as proof that their decision had been sound and that she was unfit to represent the movement in Montgomery. Now, I think that this is a good time to go ahead and put Claudette's story in Montgomery and Montgomery's bus boycott overall, which we're going to get to the bus boycott in a second, but... Um, we're going to go ahead and put Claudette's story on hold, and we're going to talk about Rosa Parks for a second. 
Um, I think that we probably all know the story of Rosa Parks that was told to us. One of an elderly or older woman who had sore feet and she was tired from work, so she refused to give up her seat. But that's not Rosa's story. Rosa's story is actually far deeper and much more interwoven with Claudette's than you may have originally thought. Born Rosa Louise McCauley in Tuskegee, Alabama, Rosa Parks moved to a small, unincorporated area outside of Montgomery when she was young called Pine Level. And it was there in Pine Level where Rosa met another young woman, Mary Ann, and they became friends and playmates. Mary Ann would later become Mary Ann Colvin, Claudette's great aunt who took her in when she was young. The Colvins and the Parks knew each other. Montgomery's not a very big city. After her marriage in 1932, Rosa began to take a deeper interest in the civil rights movement. And this really took seed in December 1943 when she joined the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and was elected to be their secretary, a role that she held until 1957. Unlike Claudette, though, Miss Parks was not just doing what she felt with no idea what would happen to her in a moment. She had been leading up to this and preparing for her arrest and this outward expression of her experience for decades. This was a demonstration. In her role as secretary for the NAACP, she had helped investigate the 1944 gang rape of Recy Taylor, which began a campaign for equal justice that was discussed nationwide. Some brief period after 1944, she held a job at Maxwell Air Force Base, which, because it was federal property, had integrated transit and helped Rosa to see that things could be different in Montgomery. And in the summer of 1955, Rosa attended the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, where she was educated in activism, nonviolence, and democratic involvement. Later that summer, in August 1955, Emmett Till was brutally murdered after reportedly flirting with a white woman in Mississippi. Four days before her historic demonstration and arrest, Miss Parks attended a meeting at Dr. King's Dexter Avenue Church, where she learned that the two men who had murdered Till were acquitted. This was the case that she and the NAACP had been working the hardest on and had gained more attention than any other. She was devastated to see that even after all of that, two white men still walked free. She felt moved to do something, and she had been prepped and groomed for this event. This, she knew, was her destiny. On the day of Rose's arrest, she knew what she was doing, and she executed her plan well. Claudette's path was not as clear, and her story did not round itself out in the way that we all began to know the story of Miss Parks. Although the timeline in many books will tell you that the Montgomery bus boycott was caused by the actions and the arrest of Rosa Parks, the civil rights leaders in Montgomery and the NAACP had long known that a boycott of the bus system was going to be their greatest tool. Community leaders were just waiting for the right person to be arrested, someone who could anger the black community into action and would agree to go up against the segregation laws, but most importantly to them, someone that was above reproach because in order for this to work they had to get the public behind it and that included white people at the time in montgomery 75 percent of all the passengers that used the bus system were black this meant to both the leaders of the civil rights movement and the leaders of the bus boycott that they needed to do what would attract the most attention which meant selecting black people that they thought white folks were more likely to be interested in it is Claudette and her family's belief that due to Rosa Parks' age, the texture and length of her hair, her lighter skin tone and even complexion, her marital status, and her general authority in the community that she was selected to be the face of the bus boycott. Claudette, on the other hand, was seen as aggressive, wild, and was now a pregnant black teen. They saw Rosa Parks as an established woman. The boycott officially began on December 5, 1955, after members of the NAACP and the organizers of the boycott handed out leaflets over the weekend, urging the public to not use the bus system in support of Miss Parks and her defiance of the law. The leaflet actually calls out the fact that Miss Parks acted after the infuriating arrest of Claudette earlier that year. Miss Parks had been arrested on December 1st, and by December 3rd, there were little to no black people riding the bus. And soon, black taxi drivers began offering rides for the same fare as the bus. But the city ended this quickly. 
Also, in the time between Rose's arrest and her trial, local ministers met at the church on Dexter Avenue. This is where Dr. Martin Luther King was elected to be the leader of the boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott was extremely effective, with community members riding bikes, walking, carpooling, offering rides to others, riding mules, taking horse-drawn buggies, hitchhiking, and if they couldn't manage any of that, they still wouldn't take the bus. They'd rather miss out. Black churches and other groups around the nation raised money to send to Montgomery in support of the boycott and Montgomery's black citizens. The bus boycott went on for 382 days, and it actually was not ended because of Rosa Parks' case, which was slow moving through the appeals of state court, but rather because of another case that had been heard by the highest court in the land and had been upheld, Browder v. Gale. The Browder v. Gale case is Claudette's case, it just isn't named after her. It was about two months into the bus boycott that the leaders began to reconsider the role that Claudette's case could possibly have in the advancement and success of the campaign. The leaders of the cause were looking for a case that they could take to the national level quickly, and because Rose's case would be stuck in state appeals for some time, they wanted to cut the head off of this ugly snake quickly, so they decided to bring together a group of women who had been wrongfully treated or arrested due to their skin color on the Montgomery bus lines. So they approached Aurelia Browder, Claudette Colvin, Susie McDonald, Mary Louise Smith, and Jeanetta Reese to bring a lawsuit against the city of Montgomery and its actions of enforcing segregation on the privately operated buses in the city. The women agreed and they filed a federal civil action lawsuit bypassing the Alabama state court system. On February 1, 1956, Fred Gray filed Browder v. Gale in the U.S. District Court and it was named for Miss Browder, the eldest of the women, and W.A. Gale, the mayor of Montgomery at the time. On June 5th of the same year, the district court ruled that the enforced segregation of black and white passengers on motor buses operating in the city of Montgomery violated the Constitution and the laws of the United States. This was due to the fact that the conditions deprived people of equal protections under the 14th Amendment. The decision urged the city and the state to stop their operation of segregated buses. The city and state, of course, appealed this decision, and it was passed on to the Supreme Court, where on November 13th of 1956, it affirmed the district court's previous ruling to desegregate. Almost a month later, on December 17th, the Supreme Court denied the state of Alabama's request for a rehearing of the case. And finally, on December 20th, the decision was enforced, with federal marshals giving Mayor Gale official notice to desegregate the bus lines immediately. Legally, the buses had to be integrated, but the shadow of Jim Crow was still hanging over Montgomery and over Alabama. Progress had been made and integration had been won in the courts, but the violence and hatred was not going to end so simply. A shotgun was fired through the front door of Dr. King's home. A black teenager was attacked as she left the bus one evening. Buses were fired upon by snipers and a pregnant woman was shot in the legs. Rosa Parks moved to Detroit and Claudette moved to New York City. Though the fight in Montgomery had been won, the heroes whose lives inspired the action of the people were forced to push community and home aside in favor of their personal safety. And for decades, Claudette felt that her story would always be covered by the legend of Rosa Parks. But she fully acknowledges that one could not be successful without the other. And when Rosa Parks was arrested on December 1st, 1955 and became the face of the Montgomery bus boycott, Mary Ann Colvin made her daughters promise that they would not speak disrespectfully of what Miss Parks had done and they could not speak of Claudette's case. The Colvin family did not intend then and does not intend now to take away from the story and the bravery of Rosa Parks. They only want Claudette's story to be heard too. In 2016, Claudette's niece visited the newly opened Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and she was excited to see what kind of display they had out about her auntie Claudette and about her contribution to the civil rights movement. But when she entered the museum and she was able to see the placard, that all changed. The description of Claudette's experience said that Browder v. Gale had been a test case, but Claudette and her family feel differently. 
I mean, this is a decision that not only ended the bus boycott, but this was decided by powerful white men in favor of black women who had been defended by black men, something that felt impossible at the time. Claudette herself has said that she feels a part of history was left out and that Dr. King may not have even won the Nobel Peace Prize if it had not been for the boycott's success, which was directly caused by her case. During a 2019 interview with New York radio station 1010 Winds that featured both Claudette and her sister Gloria, Gloria said, quote, All we want is the truth. Why does history fail to get it right? Had it not been for Claudette Colvin, Aurelia Browder, Susie McDonald, and Mary Louise Smith, there may not have been a Thurgood Marshall, a Martin Luther King, or a Rosa Parks, end quote. Though over time there have been many efforts to solidify her place in history, there are lots of people who still don't know the story of Claudette Colvin. In the 2010s, a road in King Hill, Claudette's old neighborhood, was dedicated to her and now bears the title Claudette Colvin Drive. The Montgomery City Council passed a resolution in 2017 to declare March 2nd, the anniversary of her arrest, Claudette Colvin Day. And in 2019, a new statue of Rosa Parks and four granite markers to honor the plaintiffs of Browder v. Gale were unveiled. This memorial is actually in Court Square in Montgomery, where, as I had previously mentioned, one of the largest slave markets in the South had once been. In 2021, 66 years after her arrest, Claudette applied to the Family Court of Montgomery County to have her juvenile arrest record expunged. When asked why now when it came to her record, Claudette said that the nationwide response and demonstrations after the death of George Floyd reignited the activist spirit inside of her, and that she wanted her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren to know that even in her 80s and even in her wheelchair, she still had the fighting spirit inside of her. The motion was supported by the district attorney at the time, and in December of 2021, Judge Calvin L. Williams expunged Claudette of her juvenile record at the age of 82 years old. Judge Williams is a black man, and when he and Claudette finally had the chance to meet, she was moved to tears. When asked what this moment meant for him, Judge Williams said, quote, When she did this in 1955, there were no African-American judges in Montgomery. She stood up for rights, and now I'm the beneficiary and the byproduct of that, and I can correct the wrong that was done to her. End quote. In response, Miss Claudette said, Amen to that. This story was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed this. This was great. This has been a long one, but it's been one that I think that has been really informative. Um, it is so important that we talk about these topics, that we talk about these stories that some of us may not know. And it's important for us as white people to do the legwork here and to really go out and find out our own information. It is not the duty of black people to educate us. It is our duty to go out and find information and unlearn some of the stories and some of the situations that we might have thought were how things had gone down in the past. So I know we are more than halfway through um, February and through Black History Month, but I do want to go ahead and recommend some of my favorite uh, documentaries and some of my favorite books that I've read from Black authors recently. My list of things to watch is like The 1619 Project, Till, The Story of Lowendous County, 13th on Netflix, which you haven't seen thir 13th, please watch 13th, um, Becoming, Grass is Greener, Loving, In Our Mother's Gardens, Emancipation, The Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson, which if you don't know Marsha P. Johnson, she was almost the topic of this episode. I would love to get into her. I might cover her during Pride, um, so I would love to get into that. 12 Years a Slave, King in the Wilderness, Glory Road, Gotta Throw a Basketball Movie in there, and LA 92. Some things that I think that you should read if you've never read them before, 
Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, The Autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, Heavy by Kise Lehman, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, Kindred by Octavia Butler, and The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Um, these books cover a very wide range of things. Kindred is fiction, Heavy is, I would call it a memoir. You know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, but it's written by somebody else because somebody else transposed it. We're covering a lot of stuff here, um, but you should check it out, nevertheless. Again, thank you for sticking with me, guys. This has been so much fun. Oh my gosh, I'm having a blast in the closet this week. Um, I'm not as hot this week. I think it's because of the Capri Sun and the hydration. Uh, so yeah, before I start talking again for another hour, goodbye guys. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, comment, and stay safe out there. Until next time, bye.